I could take out of my life everything except my experiences at St. Andrew, and I still have a rich, full life. But the last tee shot I hit was more like it, that one in the playoff. Against Biden and Ray. That's right. The best thing to win the Masters, you, you will be here forever, as long as, as you are still alive, so that's the best thing. I'm very happy. Welcome to a special episode of Talking Golf History in a co-released podcast with Warren Rogan's Sports Forgotten Heroes. If you have never listened to one of Warren's pods, you're in for a real treat. This episode of Talking Golf History recalls the story of Craig Wood, and how he went from the man who is best known for the Grand Slam of runner-ups, second place in all four majors, to a two-time major champion in a span of a couple months in 1941. Warren and I are joined by George Petro, who helped us weave this wonderful tale of Craig Wood, as we discuss Wood's fabulous golf medals, which reside in Petro's collection. If you love sports histories, Warren Rogan's Sports Forgotten Heroes is impossible to beat. Without further ado, Warren Rogan and Sports Forgotten Heroes. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. The 2021 Professional Football Researchers Association Convention will be held at the Gold Jacket Lounge at the Pro Football Hall of Fame during the final weekend of June. Convention speakers will celebrate the 100th anniversary of the founding of the NFL. The fee for the convention is $50 for members and $100 for non-members. The fee includes admission to the convention and Pro Football Hall of Fame, meals on Friday evening and Saturday afternoon, and free parking. All convention activities are subject to COVID-19 protocols. For more details, Click on the 2021 PFRA convention link at profootballresearchers.org. He is one of golf's most overlooked stars of the 30s and 40s. He was the first in the history of the game to lose each of golf's four majors in a playoff. But finally, in 1941, He broke through, and as the 2021 Masters is getting ready to tee off, it is time to take a look back at the career of the man who won his first major 80 years ago in the 1941 Masters. Next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we recall the career of the great Craig Wood. This is Sports Forgotten Heroes, a tribute to the stars who shape the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes, episode number 103, Craig Wood. So glad you could join today 
as the world of sports turns its attention to the azaleas and the majestically manicured fairways and greens of Augusta National for the 2021 Masters. I'm posting this episode on Tuesday, April 6th, 2021. And the Masters gets underway in just two days, April 8th. Certainly, as this podcast covers stars of yesterday, which makes these evergreen, I don't normally refer to anything currently. But in this instance, I am mentioning the dates to give today's show a little more relevance. You see... Today's subject, Craig Wood, won the Masters, his first major championship, on Sunday, April 6, 1941, 80 years ago. Wood had enjoyed a marvelous career up to that point. He had won 17 tournaments to date and another five tournaments that carried significant weight even though they weren't official PGA tournaments. Events such as the Kentucky Open, the New Jersey PGA Championship, and the Metropolitan PGA Championship. Most notably, however, was the fact that Wood was unable to break through in a major. In fact, Wood was the first golfer to lose each of golf's majors in a playoff. The only other golfer to have suffered the same fate, and he did so somewhat recently, is Greg Norman. Wood lost playoffs in the 1933 Open Championship to Denny Shute. The 1934 PGA Championship to Paul Runyon on the 38th hole. The 1935 Masters to Gene Sarazen and the 1939 U.S. Open to Byron Nelson. Yeah, Wood played against some of the game's greats. And by the way, that 1933 Open Championship loss to Denny Shute, I have a show coming up on Denny as well. Finally, however, 1941 was to be Woods' year. He finally broke through winning the Masters, and later in the year, he won the U.S. Open. And joining me today to talk about the forgotten career of Craig Wood is the host of a terrific podcast himself, Connor T. Lewis. Connor has appeared on Sports Forgotten Heroes before, and his podcast, Talking Golf History, is a must-listen for any fan of the sport. Also joining me today is George Petro. Now, George is, let's see, um, how to say it, a Craig Wood aficionado, a huge fan of golf. George is also a collector of Craig Wood memorabilia, and he has some really good stories about his collection. And as a bonus... All three of us, Connor, George, and myself, are going to talk a little bit about collecting golf memorabilia. Now, before I get started, and as always, a few reminders for everyone. 
Sports Forgotten Heroes is a member of the Sports History Network. This is a wonderful network of podcasts, all concentrating on different aspects of sports history. Check it out at sportshistorynetwork.com. There is so much there for you to enjoy. Of course, I encourage everyone to check out my website as well, sportsfh.com. Here is where you can learn more about the stars me and my guests talk about, as I have links to stats and footage of each star. You can also click on the Ask a Question link to see forgotten stars whom I will be discussing in the near future, and you can submit a question here as well. Have some fun. Participate. Remember, that's sportsfh.com. You can also follow Sports Forgotten Heroes on Twitter, at SportsFHeroes. On Facebook, just look for the Sports Forgotten Heroes page and look for Sports Forgotten Heroes on Instagram. Also, if you think about it, please let all of your family and friends know about Sports Forgotten Heroes as well. I'm sure there's content here everyone will enjoy. And as always, if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please give Sports Forgotten Heroes a five-star rating. And if you can, write a small review. Anything, everything you do, especially if it is a five-star rating, really, truly does go a long way. As always, thanks for listening. Your support is greatly appreciated, and it does not go unnoticed. Okay, let's get back to today's podcast and my subject, Craig Wood, the 1941 Masters and U.S. Open champion with my guests, Connor T. Lewis and George Petro. Connor, thanks so much for joining me again on Sports Forgotten Heroes and George Petro. Thanks for jumping on board as well. I'm glad both of you could be here. Very excited to be. Thanks for having us again, Warren. Absolutely. Thank you, Warren. My pleasure. So, um, George, let's start with you. You are a big fan of Craig Wood. Tell us why. Where does your fandom for Craig come from? Well, let me tell you, um, for myself as well, I, uh, he was one of sports forgotten heroes to me too, for most of my life. But, um, basically what I'm, I've been a golfer for life. Well, golfer, at least since I was 12 years old, but uh, a collector since I was five years old. So I've collected everything. I started the rocks and minerals and in 1992, I, um, ran into somebody at an antique show who was from the Golf Heritage Society, then known as the Golf Clerk Society, and had a table full of golf items. And I said, wow, you can collect golf? And that literally changed my life. I started learning about golfers. I started to get together with friends. We started going to the auctions together, each other's homes, collecting together. And so that was a whole awakening for me. And how I got into Craig Wood was kind of by accident. In that same year, 93, I saw I went to a pre-auction viewing and I saw this shiny gold object, which was the 1955 U.S. Open medal, mm. which which um, Jack Fleck beat Ben Hogan. 
1955 for the U.S. Open, which would have been Hogan's fifth. So I had a U.S. Open medal all my own. I didn't earn it, but I bought it. Wow. Wow. But that's where it started. Well, I decided, I found out that I had a friend who had a PGA medal. And he wanted my medal and I wanted his. And so I won the toss. And so now I owned a PGA medal and a U.S. Open medal. And I said, it's time to own the slam. So that was going to be my lifelong (laughs) goal is be a slam owner. And it didn't take long. A British Open medal came up in an auction in London. And there I was missing a master's medal. And I waited months, then years, then more years and more years and and nothing, no master medal, silver or gold that ever sold. And so I got a phone call one day from a prominent guy in the Golf Heritage Society who was at a show of golf collectors. And he said, George, I have a silver medal from the masters. Wow. Possible. Wow. A, 30, a 1934 and a 1935. And I said, by whom? He said, Craig Wood. And I went, that just vaguely rings a bell. But I knew that the 34 masters was the first masters. But I knew that 35 was somehow associated with that shot heard around the world. Mm-hmm. And I said, I want the 35. Try to buy it for me. So we made a deal on what I'd pay. And he got to the guy who had and said, well, the 34 is gone. You'll have to take the 35. And I was overjoyed. I wanted the 35. So that that filled the hole for another eight years until I actually, down the line, ended up with um, two more Craigwood items that, you know, just, you know, you know, completed my uh, my slam. Mm hmm. Very Boy, his interesting. His story is so much better than yeah, mine. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say. <laughs> it's very I mean, I now. <laughs> keep, keep going. Keep going. Oh, sure. I'd be happy to. So, um, you know, like every, basically what happened was, though, I still wanted a gold medal because it was kind of a slam. And I had one of each type, but one was silver. And I was happy with that because, you know, I was learning about Craig Wood and I found out so much. And that's what you do. Anytime you own some object, or you collect it, you now are not just an organizer and a displayer, you are a researcher because you just can't help but go deep mm-hmm. and find out like where it came from, you know, how it, all the details. Um, and um, so I was learning about Craig Wood. And um, about five years after I got a silver medal, I find in an auction uh, overseas that Craig Wood's 1941 Masters and U.S. Open gold medals are up for auction. So I go, oh, this is it. I finally got it. So um, I've been, I tried to buy the Masters medal, and one of my friends in, in from Chicago wanted the thing as well. I had no idea he was collecting this. But he bid me up to a, an insane number and just enough <laughs> that I could uh, um, just hang on. And um, so I got the Masters medal, which left the um, – 1941 U.S. Open medal won by Craig Wood for him. And so he bought it. Now, I about within a year, I said, these medals belong together. I've got his 41 Masters. You've got his 41 um, Open, U.S. Open. They need to be together. And so I started trading things to him and finally put them together so that they can sit side by side. And, um, you know, and I was able to lend them to um, when Craig Wood was uh, inducted into the uh, World Golf Hall of Fame in 2008. I was able to lend them uh, those items to the um, 
museum where they stayed for a few years. And um, so it all worked out well, got me a trip to uh, the Hall of Fame um, free, got me on a uh, radio show tonight. So, you know, all good. So, um, yeah, I'm a big fan of Craig Woods. I mean, you know, he was a lovable guy, he had an incredible history. Wow. Well, I want to stick with this, with, with memorabilia for a moment here. These auctions, how do you find out about them? Where are they? Is it, you know... Um, how do you get involved? Tell us about that, both of you, if you can. Yeah, sure. I'll start, and then I'll let Connor take over. Okay, if you'd like. um, in the old days, and for me, that was in the 90s and early 2000s, um, there was one big auction in the United States. It was called Sporting Antiquities Auction just outside of Boston. Uh, run by a friend of mine, Kevin McGrath. And then there were three big auctions that were the days before the British Open, somewhere in Great Britain. So that's where you would get most of your, that's, where, that's how you get involved in auctions. And you would know that every March was the Ireland, uh, Andover, um, the Massachusetts auction. And then in July, around the Open, would be the three big Christie's, Sotheby's, Bonham's auctions. Um, and then that, uh, and then you would meet with fellow collectors, and that's why the society that I'm talking about, um, the Golf Hitters Society, was really big because you could trade and buy from each other. Well, along came the internet, of course, and um, everything's become internet auctions. But if, but um, um, we have on our website, I'm not trying to plug it for that, but on our website we uh, we post the dates of the auctions. And um, they run, there's usually an auction, uh, probably every month, there will be an internet auction that you can relatively easily get on and view hundreds, if not thousands of items and have your pick, depending on what you like. When I was researching for this episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes, and Connor suggested you, George, you sent me back a note. And one of the things I found interesting in your note was this. You said there's competition for Craig Wood memorabilia. Now, you've just told us about how you and a friend were, were out there trying to get different pieces of Craig Wood memorabilia. Is that what you were referring to in that note? Or is there more competition out there? And if there is, what is it like? Here, here, exactly. Like at that time, we were my friend and I were is were um, competing for both, not only a medal, but something because it was Craig Woods. Because, as you say, there is a lot of competition for his memorabilia. Um, he passed away in '68. Um, he is a famous Masters uh, champion, and so people who are putting together Masters-related uh, displays and collections. Nita Craig Wood, and he is a very difficult signature to find. Yeah. If you if you begin with yeah if you begin with signatures, I mean, um, we're almost only a Bobby Jones signature is is more valuable than a Craig Wood. He's right up there. Um, so you know, just a cut signature on a piece of paper, or a small card, might be a thousand dollars. I will say that a Signed golf balls can be valuable, like a Bobby Jones signed golf ball are very rare. But I know of only one signed Craig Wood ball, and that went at auction just a few months ago for $22,000. Wow. Had, 
Wow. Yeah. Where, wow. Whereas you could, whereas you could pick up a Ben Hogan or, a, you know, for, you know, uh, 10% of that most of the time, a Jack Nicholas ball for a hundred or $200, but Craig Wood, 22,000 bucks. Wow. So he's in high demand. Connor, I know that you're an avid collector of golf memorabilia as well. So this question is for, well, it's for both of you. How do you sure. find golf memorabilia to collect, uh, you know, excluding these auctions? What fascinates it about, you know, what fascinates you guys about golf memorabilia? And when yeah. you're narrow, narrowing down your search to a, particular piece of golf memorabilia or a particular person such as Craig Wood, how do you go about it? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, it's semi-connected to George's story, but uh, I, I didn't think of this until after I agreed to come on the show with George. The first ever item I had in my entire collection was a Craig Wood owned driver. It was actually a brassy, <laughs> my bad. It was a brassy. <laughs> And my mother got it for me for Christmas because she knew I, I love golf and I love history. And she picked it up. I mean, this is, gosh, I, it might be 15, 20 years ago or something. I don't think she paid a whole lot for it. And, you know, I think much like George, uh, I love golf. I love history. I, that certainly wasn't, you know, doing the Society of Golf Historians or talking golf history. So, you know, I had to do a little research on him. And, you know, I think just like George realized what a fascinating person he was. And that's really like everything I'm, I'm, you know, basically making this uh, podcast for my golfist, which is surrounded by golf history, but it all started there. Uh, the easiest way to track down things, and I mean like specifics. So I always tell people, if you're getting into collecting, the first thing you do wrong as someone who wants to collect golf antiquities is you buy everything. <laughs> mm. You know, you, you just... Oh, that's amazing. I got to have to, you know, Jack Nicholas autograph putter. I need to have that. Or, um, you know, I need a Bobby Jones card. I, I'm, I'm going to need that. Right. So, and what you realize is about, I don't know, one to five years that you can't really collect everything unless you own a warehouse. And there are a couple of people that have warehouses. Uh, but really, I find it better if you build a collection around a story or multiple stories that you want to tell. Mm -hmm. Right. Like if you walk into my office, my golf office, as I call it, um, there are multiple stories. There's the history of the game of golf. Uh, but there's also, you know, my podcast is weirdly memorialized on my walls. So every time I do a podcast on a subject, whether, you know, I get a club or a photograph or a, a painting, it seems to track into my office somehow. Mm. But I'll tell you, the easiest way to do it, yes, golf auctions. The problem with golf auctions, and I love them. And almost everyone that runs a golf auction knows who I am because I call them and I try to figure out what they have in their auction before it comes out. Uh, but one of the, if you really want to like build a collection around items and you want to do it on your time, uh, George mentioned this, the Golf Heritage Society is probably the best organization for those people. And it costs like $50 to join. It comes with uh, four magazines a year. I'm going to be hosting a, a, a Zoom interview with, you know, you know, historians and, and artists and all these different, you know, uh, major championship winners. And we're going to talk about history, but we're also, you know, they're very intertwined into golf collecting. That's how it started as the Golf Collector Society. So as you join, you basically get, George, what do we have, like a thousand people in, on the, you know, in the mailing list? And it exactly. says what they collect. 
So let's say I'm a Bobby Jones collector, or I, better yet, I'm a medals collector. I want to collect medals. Like George is the number one pri- guy probably in the world that you want to talk to about how to build a collection of medals. And there's that facet all the way down to like golf pencils and golf tees and, you know, golf balls throughout that entire organization. So you can really connect with people that have the same passion. You can buy, sell, and trade through those people, but use them as mentors to help build your own collection. And do you agree with that, George? Yeah, I, I wholeheartedly agree. I mean, that's, that's exactly what happened to me because I had no idea where to start. I mean, where do you start? And so I started, as you say, as a quote, a generalist. And I'm not sad that I did because um, it's an evolution. I mean, you can't, it's very hard to just pick a and just go there from the start. Some people mm-hmm. do that because, you know, your uncle was a famous player or you watch so-and-so play on a, on your favorite golf course. And that can give you an immediate direction. But what I did was I started collecting clubs and balls, a little bit of art, you know, a piece of ceramic here or there. And I'm not sad that I did because it gave me sort of this baseline across all aspects that I have stuck with till this day. However, I have then focused on these particular areas. And for me, I saw that U.S. Open medal, and then I became a medal guy. Mm. But I'm still a ball guy and a club guy on the side, but you can't have it all. But it's, um, but everybody, almost everybody finds out that you can be a generalist, but, you know, it's, 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 it's more fun to be like the curator of this new thing that you know almost more than anybody else about it. And you become a little local expert in the, in the golf heritage society or whatever. And, um, we form our groups and, you know, everybody's welcome, but you know, that's how we, how we get together. I mean, people can also buy things on eBay, things like that, but, um, it's it's just it's it's a big happy group collecting like that. I will I will add if you go to the Golf Heritage Society, I've written a 20, 25 page article that's wow. free. You just go look at it. And it's how where how to start collecting medals and trophies if you're interested. And other people have done that in other subject areas. So mm-hmm. um, that's a good place to get started too. But it's just if there are just so many collectors that just collect things. I mean, I've collected baseball cards, coins, mm-hmm. all these things. But when, the day I found golf as a collectible, I mean, that just changed my life. And I think that'll do that for a lot of people because there's so many interesting areas we could never even begin to cover here. Mm-hmm. And people. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah. Well, well, I'm going to get people that do the collections. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm going to get I'm going to get to the eBay. I have one. Uh, obviously, we're talking about Craig Wood and we're going to get into Craig Wood. But this memorabilia thing also fascinates me. I'm a an avid collector, more of a generalist uh, between baseball and football and and golf and hockey. I have some. Well, you know, it's valuable stuff to me. I've signed books that are you know, signed to me from, you know, sports so legends cool. that yeah. that I have met. And that obviously is very personal and takes on a completely different meaning. And I want to get to eBay in one second or sites such as eBay. But the one question I wanted to ask is, when you go to these auctions or, you know, whether they're virtual or whatever, how much money do you have to go with? Obviously, there's going to be stuff that is incredibly expensive, but are there things that are 
worth bidding on that are maybe a couple of hundred bucks as a as opposed to oh, yeah. tens of thousands of dollars? I mean, how low, you know, can somebody get something that's worth something at least to them? And I'll say it on the cheap. Yeah, in in regards to can you go to auctions or various places and get things reasonably priced? The answer is absolutely. I will tell you something that happened in the, the auction just a week ago. Um, my son and I went to a golf tournament called the BC Open, um, and John Daly was the winner. And we immensely enjoyed following John Daly every day of that tournament. And last week at an auction, a BC Open logo golf ball signed by John Daly was there for $28. Oh, wow. And so you can, you can find a pair of Ricky Fowler signed orange uh, shoes that he wears every Sunday. And that might be three or 400 bucks that he assigned one of the, you know, so it's just endless because we're all looking at different things and there are thousands of items to look through. And if you, besides that, if you went to one of our, our uh, regional or um, national shows, I mean, things are there from $5 to $50,000 and most of it's under $500, mm. you know, it all depends like, mm-hmm. Um, some amazing, you know, golf clubs that are so interesting. They're called patent clubs. You can have for a hundred dollars, two hundred dollars, and they can hang on your wall and you know, just eye catching because they're odd shapes and crazy face. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, there are a lot of opportunities. You just have to look, see, see what you like. You put in a bid, and um, you get used to it. And then, um, you know, there are also strategies on how much to bid, what's a good number. A lot of people may not want to go over $200, so you might bid 210 and you get it. Hmm. You know, that extra 10 bucks makes it yours. So it's And it's also fun. It's just a lot of sure. fun. Sure. When it's really expensive, then, you know, that means somebody like me, I might buy some really expensive, and then I say, you know what, I got to cool it for a year and just hope nothing great <laughs> Well, you know, I said I was going to get to the eBay question or websites such as an eBay. In regards to golf memorabilia, how do you know if what you're buying is authentic and what makes it valuable? I guess the value comes in the eye of the beholder. But how do you know if what you're buying is actually the real thing? You know, when it comes to auctions, I think specifically eBay, everything is about provenance. Like provenance is a letter or, you know, something that guarantees what you're buying is what they say it is. There are a lot of things on eBay. I I pipe down because it's not my place to, you know, write to people and say, you know, there's no proof that this was so-and-so's club or, you know, you need to like verify the stories behind things. And a lot of times those come by written letters by the people who receive those items mm-hmm. from the historical figures, or, you know, in the case of autographs, you can get people to verify them, but you got to be really careful. And I think again, you know, not to make an, make this an endless plug, but having people connected that can help you within, you know, an organization such as, the Golf Heritage Society goes a long way. So if you're looking for a, a Bobby Jones autograph, there are people that just collect those kind of items. And they can tell you what provenance is needed for that to really verify, you know, that item. And I mm-hmm. think that's critical. I think if you are 
really well versed in history. You're very well, you know, versed in antiquities. There are great bargains to be found on eBay. I have some amazing items in my collection that I've bought, you know, front on the cheap, if you will, because I knew what I was getting and the person who was selling it really didn't know what they had. Mm. But most people would be, would put themselves in financial danger, even if it's a $5 bid versus thousands of dollars by taking a chance without knowing what that object is. George, what do you think there? Yeah, absolutely. I um, really take, I, I assume that everything is fake or wrong. And then I prove to myself that it isn't. And <laughs> the, vast, the vast majority of time, you can tell if you have a little bit of background, you've learned after a couple of years. So if you're an absolute novice, be really careful and definitely use your friends. I mean, I don't have somebody from our organization call me probably every other week and say, hey, check out item so-and-so. And I'll tell them, if I'm not bidding on it, I'll tell everything you want to know about it. <laughs> and, I, and I say, oops, I'm bidding on that too. Once in a while that happens. But, um, you know, we'll just kick it around. I say, I've got one just like it. That's real as rain. And you can usually tell by looking um, that that something's real and it fits. And, and so many times it's just glaringly obvious that it doesn't. But just as a Well, I mean, George... That's there's glaringly obvious to us. I don't know if it's glaringly <laughs> obvious to everybody. Mm. No, not to everybody. That's why a little experience. That's why you can't jump in, you know, head first day one and just buy stuff that you think is, you know, in your realm. No, right. That won't work. Mm. Yeah, I, I agree with that. But so, you know, and the, the prices, you know, sometimes there's enormous prices on things that are real, but they should be 500 bucks and they want four grand. So, you know, it, it's a combination of um, what it is and how much it is. And sometimes you just have to pass, you know, if you don't know, you have to pass. Right. And again, it's, the, the, the value is also the proverbial in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. 100%. Or well, actually, it would be it would be the eye of the beholders. Yeah. Right. Yeah, Specifically in the case of an auction, because if there's someone it, it takes two to tango. It takes two to run up a price and every auction house, whether they're, you know, the big auction house or eBay, all you need is two to make a record happen. Two people wanting the same item, no matter what. I, I, I know George does this, but my advice to anybody doing an auction is take a look at the item. And what I always say is I will, let's say it's a hundred dollars or I'm willing to spend a hundred dollars. Well, my whole thing is I ask myself a question. It is, and it's not just, Am I willing to spend a hundred dollars? Is it? Am I willing to spend a hundred dollars and one penny? And if the answer is yes, then it's not a hundred and one penny. And I really beat myself up during any auction, even if it's for something small. Of what is the line in the sand? If it's if it's literally a hundred dollars and two cents, and I'm out. If I lose it, I am happy as cake. But you know, I know the number. I literally tell myself down to the penny. What's the cutoff for me? And I think that's the best way to not lose your mind and have a good time going after auction items. Understood. That makes a lot of sense. All right, guys. So let's talk a little bit about Craig Wood. Love the conversation about golf memorabilia. Very entertaining, very educational. Thank you so much for it. But I want to turn our attention now to Craig Wood. And look, there are so many 
forgotten stars, heroes who have won major championships. Denny Shute, Herman Kaiser, Paul Runyon, Jerry Barber. The list goes on and on and on. But Craig Wood, he was inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame in 2008. And George, I guess you were there for that. That's awesome. I like to say he's sort of a mystery man. He is the victim of one of the most legendary shots in golf history, Gene Sarazen's incredible double eagle in the 1935 Masters. And we're going to talk about that in a moment. But first, can either of you tell me who was Craig Wood and what made him worthy of such the prestigious honor of being inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame? Yeah, I, I'll start off. I'll let George back me up here if that's all right. But one of the really cool things that you have to take into account on Craig Wood, I think one thing that, that a lot of people miss, he won uh, two majors in 1941. He only won two majors. Mm-hmm. But one of the really cool facts about Craig Wood, if you really think about it, is he was only a year older than Bobby Jones. So Bob Jones won 13 majors before 1931. And it would be another 10 years, 1941, for Craig Wood to win his first two. Wow. That's a staggering fact to me. So he was 39 years old in 1941 when he won the Masters and the U.S. Open, becoming the first ever golfer, by the way, to win the Masters and the U.S. Open in the same year. But think of, I mean, that, that is an outstanding fact to me. Mm-hmm. That, you know, Bob Jones was retired for 11 years, essentially, before Craig Wood won his first major. Isn't that an unbelievable little factoid? It is. You know, and he didn't win it till he was 39, but, and we're going to get into this too, he he certainly had opportunities to to win. Oh, yes. I mean, he's, uh, and, and we're, we're going to get into all that. George, you have anything to add uh, about uh, who Craig Wood was? Yeah, you know, that's that's interesting. Um you know, that brings to mind, you know, you know, one of the reasons, you know, he, he's in a way, a, 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 first of all, he had a lot of chances before he was 39, but he was kind of a late bloomer. It's interesting. We all know about the Hogan stories that, you know, Hogan got, became great when he changed the swing from a, from a, a draw to a fade pattern. And Craig Wood did the exact same thing. He, he used to draw the ball as a young person, but he then, decided to fade the ball um as he got into his career and that's really when he started winning um and um he also changed his putting like very few people change many things he didn't do bernard longer but he he had a very crouched over putt uh, like the many of the guys did in the mid-20s and he went to a much more uprighting putt upright putting style later and i think you put the combination of Fading his drives, he was still monstrous long and often used a two-wood instead of a driver, and his new putting style. So I think those things combined exactly with what um, Connor's saying, um, you know, he had his best years, you know, later in his career. Yeah, how long a hitter was? Yeah, go ahead, Connor. Yeah, I was going to say you were talking about how long of a hitter he was. He was actually, his nickname was the Blonde Bomber. Which I mean, that's a pretty good nickname. You're sure. gonna get one. Yeah. <laughs> he looked like I mean, you got he was like Cary Grant with blonde hair. He was he was like Arnold Palmer, good looking, right? 
he was voted several times in his years the most the, the most popular man in on the PGA. Mm. Like, people love this man. This is before 1941. He was the most popular, one of the most popular people on tour, which is why I also I, I parallel his career, though completely different, mind you, to like that of Phil Mickelson, mm. right? Where you remember Phil. I mean, we now know him as what six-time major champion winner, but you know, for years, Phil was you know always you know, the stepsister and never, you know, the, the sister, right. He was mm-hmm. always the bridesmaid, never the bride. Um, and Craig was in a very similar situation. He had all the game. He was a good putter. Uh, you know, he had the hooks like Hogan and it took him a longer time to figure out how to get out of that mess. I would argue too, that there's some evidence that he's a better player with steel shafts than he was with Hickory. You know, he, he was, became pro in 1920. Didn't win his first tournament, I think until 1928. Uh, again, suffering with the hooks. And he was one of the first professional golfers to switch from hickory to steel. Connor, Connor, talk about about how difficult that that was because, you know, I've done a lot of work with video. And when you take a look at a golfer who was swinging a hickory shaft as opposed to a golfer who's swinging a steel shaft, they're, they're... there might be some similarities, but you know what? Those are different golf swings. Yeah, and it's really it's really a, a story of haves and have-nots. It's um, the golfers who transitioned well from hickory to steel, and there were golfers that fell apart. I will say Bob Jones, obviously, retired in 1930. But I, I would argue that Bob Jones was always a better swinger of the club with hickories than he was with steel. He had a beautiful tempo, and that's what it takes to play really great hickory golf. It's not about swing speed. It's your tempo. And as someone who played hickory for seven years, it is very difficult to find sticks that match. And I literally using the word sticks because we're talking about hickory shafted clubs Mm -hmm. that match in frequency all through the bag. So what would happen is you'd have three or four clubs that you love and you'd have three or four clubs that you absolutely hate it. And with the invention of steel, really the popularity of steel shafted clubs, there became the opportunity to really, you know, solidify the frequency throughout the set. And so those people who swung with a, a faster tempo didn't get punished like they might with hickories. Mm, interesting. Now, you said he had a long game. He switched over from, from hickory to steel. His game got better. He was a great putter. What about his short game? What kind of short game player was he? And by the way, he made a lot of clutch putts during his career. Yeah, he was a long, he was definitely, his game really sat on long hitting and putting. Uh, I think his short game was adequate, but I, I haven't found any articles of anybody really, you know, glowing about his short game. Mm-hmm. So, you know, whether that is, um, you know, left out of the historical record because he was bad. I don't, I don't have any notes that said he was bad either. It just was kind of an unmentionable, if you will. George, have you found anything on that? No, exactly that. He was, um, you know, a killer off the tee. He was probably, he was up there maybe the second longest. I mean, there was a, you know, a guy named Jimmy Thompson who was probably a little longer than him and won some like national things with drives in the high 380s. But Craig Wood was up there. I mean, he, he, you know, when you said he switched to steel shafts, he worked for Dunlop and they made sets, Craigwood sets, match sets. And one of their advertisers used to say that he could hit his brassy 300 yards. So, I mean, yeah. without, the steel, 
the steel shafts, that's probably on the high end, but the steel shafts certainly let them take a rip, you know, that, um, you know, it helped him a lot. You know, one of the other things I saw, um, he, he really wasn't what you would call an extrovert. He was more of an introvert, I think. But yeah. what fascinated me about that is, and, and you alluded to this, Connor, is how he got along with the media and the fans. He was as he was a gentleman's gentleman, very gentlemanly. Can you talk about that at all? Yeah, he was really down earth. I think that's the best thing you can, you know, really cue in on is that he really treated everyone pretty much the same. I mean, he was just a gentleman through and through. Um, yeah, I think part of that speaks to, you know, how he was raised, but you know, he, he followed in the lineage of winged foot pros. Uh, yeah, obviously it started before, but he followed Mike Brady, who is probably one of the greatest golfers who never won a major. I don't know if you've ever covered him and uh, was followed at wing foot by Claude Harmon. And mm-hmm. all three of those men, you know, maybe through the inter- you know, the interview process or just hiring from the head pro, but uh, there must be something about wing foot professionals because I think the same seems to be true with all of them, that they were, you know, never too big on themselves, always great with people. I mean, the Harmon brothers that, you know, that have, that have followed Claude's uh, footsteps still live that to a T mm-hmm. and it's worked out. I, I just think there's something about that and that lineage, the wing foot lineage of just not getting above yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, for his, yeah, go ahead. Were you going to say something, George? Um, yeah. Uh, you know, and, and along with what Connor said, you know, um, the fans loved him. I mean, they would root their brains out for him, especially after he had some of the, you know, the narrow losses before that. But, you know, he was known as the guy who would really help the upcoming pros that were younger than him. I mean, like he hired Paul Runyon, who cost him one of his majors, you know, as his assistant pro and helped him through his career. And, you know, um, and Runyon ended up beating him in a, in a major. I mean, he befriended, he, he played one round, I guess, with Sam Snead and was so impressed that he got him hooked up with Dunlop Company and got him cash and clubs. So he just helped everybody along the way, be it just individuals or other pros coming up. And at the same time, um, his family was that way. You hear in Lake Placid that his family was, um, you know, just really a stalwarts of the um, of the Lake Placid region, and you know, loved by everyone. Um, so, and then he grew up, you know, in the uh, around um, uh, caddying and around the exclusive resort area in Lake Placid, where he, there was a lot of social activity. He, he married a socialite, but he did drive fancy cars and dress you know, awesome. So, you know, you just put everything together and he was just, you know, he was a movie star. Well, let's get into his career a little bit here. He won 21 PGA titles and the two most important were the 1941 Masters and the 1941 U.S. Open. And let's start with the 1935 Masters. Twice, Craig Wood finished second in the Masters, 1934 and 1935. He finished second at the U.S. Open in 1939, second in the only Open championship he played, 1933 at St. Andrews, where he lost in a playoff to Denny Shute. And he finished second in the 1934 PGA, won by, as you just uh, mentioned, Paul Runyon. 
a lot of seconds. But the toughest second he might have had was that 1935 Masters. Wood was the clubhouse leader after the third round, and he was leading the squire, Gene Sarazen, by three strokes going into the final round of play, the 15th hole. Wood had already completed his round and was in at six under. He had a three-stroke lead over Gene Sarazen with four holes to go. And then the unthinkable happened. What was it? What was the unthinkable? Can either of you take me through the shot heard round the world? Yeah, I'll be happy to start. So Gene Sarazen playing the 15th with Walter Hagen. Um, it's funny, it's one of those cases in history, kind of like Babe Ruth's called shot um, against the Cubs, where all these people claim to have been there to see Gene Sarazen shot. Uh, but the historical note was very few people there were there other than Walter Hagen and playing as his partner and Bobby Jones watching as a spectator. When uh, Gene Sarazen pulled out essentially a two-wood and you know, hit one of the greatest shots in Masters history, perhaps the greatest shot, it's called the shot heard round the world, uh, where he actually sank it for a double eagle. It was the first double eagle in Masters history. I believe there's only been three since then, which mm. is spectacular. To do it with, uh, in 1934, uh, off the fairway from 235 yards out is another matter. And, you know, <laughs> obviously that puts him in a playoff. That doesn't win it for Gene Sarazen, but you can imagine you're being three up. I equate this to, probably unfairly, like the 1955 uh, U.S. Open with Jack Fleck. Um, mm -hmm. I think Jack, Jack, I mean, Ben Hogan was being celebrated in the locker room as winning the tournament. No one saw Jack Fleck being able to come in at the score he did. And he just came in, you know, birdie and par and holes when, you know, he was in bad spots. And we talked about this before on, on your podcast, Warren. But, you know, I think there is a level of, you know, deflation, if you will, when someone does something so miraculous. I'm not saying that Craig Wood folded in that circumstance, mm -hmm. but how often have we seen a tournament where it just feels like it's the shot of the tournament? And how many times does that shot of the tournament end up belonging to the eventual winner? Maybe it spurred Gene Sarazen to play great golf. Mm -hmm. Maybe it deflated Craig Wood, who had been already, you know, a, a, a second place finisher in what four majors at that time or was it five it was um it put him in a spot that you know it's hard to dig out of he had he'd come in second already four times prior to that right and unfortunately it turned out to be a fifth mm -hmm. i mean you know what and, and and it's good for the masters i mean you got to figure this in 1930 uh the, the prior year as a matter of fact the prior year in the masters it was the augusta national invitational not the masters and many historians claim that the shot heard around the world by Gene Sarazen effectively put the Masters as a major championship. Prior to that, some people argue in that inaugural year it wasn't. Interesting. So the fanfare that came from that shot unfortunately cost Craig Wood, but may have paid off, you know, at least from history's sake, and given us our fourth major, our fourth professional major. Mm hmm. Yeah. And go yeah, ahead, George. That, that, I, I agree completely. Yeah, it hurt Craig Wood. It, it sort of made Gene Saracen, who had done a lot of other good things, too. But as Connor said, I guess, you know, the talk was that, you know, 
if the Monday, if the the newspapers after the uh, tournament had said, um, you know, a, a, you know, a playoff tomorrow, but instead they let these, you know, big headline, you know, of the shot around the world and double eagle, and that was everywhere. And, and as Connor said, it really put the Masters on the board because a lot of people, if Bob Jones wasn't going to be leading or in contention, then a lot of people looked at it like, you know, this is Bob, it's an invitation. Bob Jones is kind of inventing his buddies and they're, you know, a bunch of guys. Right. Playing. Not, it's not that big, but after the shot heard around the world, it became really big. And in those days, the mass was financially in a lot of trouble. Hmm. And they could, you know, they could barely, um, you know, uh, raise the money for fertilizer and things for the course. So there were a lot of, lot of uh, problems, and that kind of rescued the Masters. So I agree completely. That was historic, and that's why when that 1935 um, second place, that runner-up medal came available, I said, "I got to have that." Yeah, I mean, interesting. Yeah. Interesting. This is it. Right. It's too I big. should mention. I should mention this. There is some controversy as to what club Gene Sarazen hit into yeah. that green, and it's much like the controversy between Ben Hogan one iron, two iron. Um, I've heard from people who know that it was a two wood. I've heard people say it's a spoon. I think the historical record might say spoon, but I, I, I like my sources. I'll just say that. I'm not going to divulge them because I don't have permission. Uh, but it's somebody in the know, and uh, I'll stick. I'll stay with that. Well, what we do know is it was a two on a par five, the fifteenth hole that was playing four hundred and eighty-five yards. Yeah. What What I don't well, maybe maybe you guys can clear this up for me. Why was it a thirty-six hole playoff? You know, I, I, I'll be honest with you. I don't know that off the top of my head. My my guess is that. As the playoff goes, we're only two years into the tournament. Um, you know, the first year, again, you could argue whether it was a, a master or the Masters with a major. Gene Sayers and Tommy Armour, for instance, in the first year decided not to play in it just because they just thought it was an event. Uh, my guess is that they were looking at it from asking Bob Jones. I think Bob Jones would, add, would have added the best player is likely to come out in a longer format of playoff hmm. than a shorter. Hmm. Sudden death, anybody can win sudden death. I mean, I think. I don't know if I have a quote from Bob Jones that said something like to the effect of one hole, four hole, 1836. But ultimately, if you're going to judge a champion, you give the better player more shots, more holes to play to determine who's the best. I think that was the initial intent. That's my guess. I don't have fact on that. Mm -hmm. Well, that morning round, Sarazen shot a one under, Wood shot a three over, including bogeys at 11, yeah. 12, and 13, and he never recovered. Sarazen won the Masters, the playoff at even par. Wood finished five over. Um, Amen, quarter. Amen, quarter got him. Yeah, 11, 12, and 13, exactly. It was uh, not pretty for Craig Wood. And um, after that second place finish at the Masters, the closest he would get to winning again until 41 was the 1939 U.S. Open, played at the Philadelphia Country Club. He finished in a tie for first with Byron Nelson, and once again, Denny Shute. All three finished the tournament at eight over par. Surprise, a hard course for the U.S. Open. So a playoff ensued, 18 holes on Monday morning. Nelson and Wood each shot a one under 68. 
Par was 69. Shoot struggled to a 7 over 76. In the afternoon round again, Wood was victimized by a crazy shot, this time an eagle. Can either of you talk about the 39 U.S. Open? Do either of you know anything about that tournament? George? Yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> well, you know, let, let me back up just one ounce and say that there probably shouldn't even have been a playoff because um, <clears throat> that was the one that Sam Sneed could finish bogey-bogey and win the tournament. Yeah. And um, he ended up, you know, making bogey at least be in the playoff and he bogeyed 17 and on 18 he um he hit a bad drive then he should have laid up didn't went for the par five at 18 and then hit in the trap couple get out three putted made eight and then obviously as you said shoot wood and um and and uh, byron get into the playoff um it's interesting that craig wood needed to birdie that same power five to get into the playoff with um uh, byron and shoot and like you said they they were lights out but you know um if you're talking are you talking about warren the um first 18 holes or the second 18 holes because they're both filled with you know craziness well the it, what i have on the second 18 holes you know again uh, uh, yeah, the, uh, the one iron? It's yeah, no, yeah one. go go for it. Sure. Well, on the third hole, you know, they've already played um, uh, the first 18 holes of playoff, and they come out uh, dead even. And, act, and, and there's a story involved with that. But in the now the next 18 hole, second 18 hole playoff, uh, Byron makes a beautiful birdie on the third hole. Uh, and, and then on the fourth hole, He's a long ways out, pulls a one iron, cans it for an eagle. <laughs> so he's three up on wood, and then he wins that second playoff by a total of three shots. So there was wood, you know, had to watch, um, you know, a one iron being sunk by Byron Nelson to take it away. At this point in his career, Craig Wood mu must have, must have felt like a major championship was not in the cards. I mean, he's he's snake bitten, a uh, snake bitten, and now we're going. He doesn't do much in 1940, but 1941, it finally all comes together for him, and he captures his first major, the Masters. Anything you guys want to tell me about the 1941 Masters? Besides the fact that he was the first ever wire-to-wire -wire winner, yeah, I think I'll let George answer this one. I think George will do well on this. But you gotta, you gotta know. Not only did you know he finished what six times as second place, but going to the you know after the nineteen what thirty-nine U.S. Open, he essentially became the playoff career Grand Slam holder, which meant that he had come in second due to playoff in every major which I'm not even sure if that's been done since. Well, yes, I mean, actually really there's only do. one other there's actually one other player in in history that has finished well, actually in a playoff. Craig yeah, Wood playoff, was the yeah. only man to lose all four majors in a playoff until Greg Norman. Oh, that's right. Yeah, good call. A dubious a dubious honor. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. And, and just as painful for his fans, exactly right. And they, 
um, you know, back to the going to the 41 Masters, I will say that, you know, that that just was the start of his year. I mean, you know, he, he, his first round, he shot 66. And so he had a five-stroke lead over Hogan and Nelson, who were both in second after the first day. So when you say wire-to-wire finisher, I mean, he was like right there. I mean, it's like this is his year. He's putting everything together. Um, unfortunately, what happened was um, – and uh, I think it was the last round, right? I think um, um, Craig opened with a 38 on the front yeah. nine, and Nelson did a 33. So that five-shot lead that he had going into the last – five-shot lead he had over Nelson in the last round evaporated and it looked like, here we go again. Mm. I mean, it's all, it's all even. And, um, you know, Wood was playing two holes ahead – so they didn't know exactly where they each other were, but there were various roars and, and you know, and the you know, people are talking about. So basically what happened was uh, on 13, Craig Wood, you know, the long bomber, hit it to the edge of the green in two, got up and, and he made a birdie. Whereas when um, Nelson came through, he actually hit it in Race Creek and made bogey. So then as um, Nelson was making bogey on 13, um, 15, where he had lost in the double eagle to Saracen, uh, he made his own birdie, and then birdied 16, and so he beat Byron by uh, I think it was three in the end. So he was no the, uh, the first round it was five. Think about that swing. Yeah, well that's what I said. The first round was 66 to 71. Hogan was second best with 71. Hmm. Incredible. Unbelievable. But, but you know he hung on and, uh, and 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 took it, even though it got close in the fourth round. But he 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 hung on and took it. You know, it wasn't we, to be denied. Yeah, so he get he 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 chalks up his first ever major, the 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 nineteen forty one Masters. We already talked about the U.S. Open of nineteen thirty nine. We talked about the nineteen thirty five Masters. Uh, we mentioned the 33 Open Championship at St. Andrews, but the 1934 PGA was also so cruel to Wood. Match play. PGA was a match play championship at that time, and he lost to Little Poison, Paul Runyon, in 38 wow. holes. They were even after 36 holes, even after 37 holes, and Runyon finally got the better of Wood on the 38th hole to win the first of his two PGA championships. Um, and by the way, Paul Runyon, if he soaking wet, that guy weighed 150 pounds. A very, guy. yeah, yeah real guy. little guy. I, I, I had the, the pleasure of working with Paul many years ago, a small guy. And, you know, I'll never forget interviewing Paul Runyon. And here he's hitting the ball, you know, 180 yards off the tee. He takes out Sam Snead in the PGA Championship. And I'll never forget interviewing Sam. And Sam says, he gave me such a tannin. I mean, it was a, it was a lopsided victory for Runyon. But, again, he loses here. And as I said, he was liked by everyone on tour. He was considered a gentleman of gentlemen. He must have felt snake bitten when it came to majors. So were the majors as important or as highly thought of back then as they are today? 
when you talk about losing in a playoff or coming in second in the U.S. Open, the Open Championship, the PGA, the Masters, what is it? What is his mental state like when it came to these four particular tournaments before he wins the Masters in 1941? Yeah, I would say they were, yes, they were majors. <laughs> they were major championships. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. The importance of winning these things, these majors, were career-defining. Um, you know, the, the payouts back then weren't what they are today. It wasn't millions of dollars, but certainly your ability to get a great head pro job, be that at Wingfoot, or um, be connected with Dunlap or Wilson or one of those great uh, you know, benefactors and, and club makers certainly came down to winning majors. I think one of the things, so yes, he certainly struggled in major championships in the early part of his career. We can cut that down to multiple things. I think one is much like Hogan. He's, he blossomed later in life. Uh, he needed to learn the game. I think he was very smart. I think he didn't have a big head and it didn't put him down. The other thing that I think is overlooked is that for most of his career, or a large part, large part of his career, he had back issues. Uh, yep. When he won the yep. Masters in 1941 and, and then the U.S. Open, he was wearing a corset to help him with his back pain. Um, I, I don't, you know, pretend to know that much because he hasn't written. He didn't write that much about mm-hmm. his issues with his back. But it's certainly we know in 1941 it was a major issue for him. And again, he was 39 years old. So I would not, like, overlook the ailments of Craig Wood and being part of that position. I think... You know, sometimes fate is cruel. And coming in, you know, second place six times, it, it depends on the way you look at it, right? I think some people look at it as cursed, and the other people are like, hey, I'm right there. You know, and I think, I'd like to think that Craig Woods was the kind of guy that said, hey, I'm right there. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think he was, you know, waiting his time, and 1941 just turned out to be that year. Yeah, he finally got over the hump in forty in forty one. He wins the Masters, and then he goes on to win the U.S. Open, played a Colonial, and of course, every golfer would be thrilled with winning the Masters and the U.S. Open in the same year. The course was not easy, and Wood managed to let's say survive it better than anyone else, shooting a four over two eighty four with scores of seventy three. 71, 70, and 70. He finally got the best of Denny Shute, who finished second, shooting a 7 over 287. Is there anything in particular that stands out about that Open of 1941? Why don't you go, George? Yeah, yeah sure. Um, you know, first you look at it and you say, that's the Colonial Country Club in Fort Worth. I mean, you're, you're talking the backyard of Nelson and Hogan. Yeah. So he had to go in. He had to go in there and do what he did. And as Connor mentioned, he had back problems and support, you know, and for sure he was wearing a leather corset. He could barely, you know, he couldn't swing without it at all. And in fact, I mean, the story goes that the very first hole of the tournament, I mean, he makes double bogey in agony and he's going to walk off the course and his playing partner, Tommy, Tommy Aaron says, Hey, just hang it out and make it better. See what you can do. Well, he finishes with a 73, which puts him, you know, 10th, 15th place. He's not out of it. And what does he do? He comes back and does the 71 that you mentioned, then throws a pair of 70s in there. 
and you know blows everybody away. He, he ended Hogan, I think, came in third. He beat Hogan by five, hometown favorite. Hmm. So he really, um, you know, he shook the uh, the moniker. He they used to call him the number two Wood, and then they started to call him the the number one Wood after he did that. Mm-hmm. So you know, yeah, I he, think I think one one of the most remarkable things about 1941 is those were the only two wins. You know, a lot of times you see guys, uh, players out there that win. You know, even a major year, you see multiple victories out of it. Right. Or you get two majors a year. Rarely do you see two majors without some minor tournament victories. And again, maybe we chalk this up to his bad back, but it stands out to me. Mm-hmm. It just stands out. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, he was a terrific athlete. In fact, he played hockey at Clarkson in upstate New York. His father was a big man, six foot eight, was a lumberjack. And Craig claims that some of his, Craig's, great hand-eye coordination is due to his working with his father and swinging an axe. And that hand-eye coordination led to a pretty darn good, consistent career. And I think we talked about that, that he won 21 tournaments, and they were all from 1928 through 1944. Can you talk at all about his consistency? And again, can you talk about his length off the tee in comparison to his contemporaries? Yeah, I'll start and I'll let George finish up this one. But I mean, there's zero doubt he was a consistent player. You don't become, you know, a fan favorite on the PGA Tour without any majors, without being someone who's always in the mix. If you think about it, I mean, just a little, I mean, it's easy to do this little snapshot or a look back, but he's four strokes away from having six majors, which would put him there with Lee Trevino, Nick Faldo, uh, Byron Nelson, Seve Ballesteros, Peter Thompson, and Phil Mickelson. Four strokes. Call that four putts. Call that four chips. Wherever you want to sprinkle him, he's four strokes away from six majors and being considered one of the greatest golfers that ever lived. Mm Mm-hmm. That, to me, is staggering. You know, more than Byron, more than Seve, more than Peter Thompson, more than Phil, and just as many as Lee Trevino and Nick Faldo. Wow, yeah. Four measly strokes. Yeah. You know, and some of them, and some of them as you say, are just really crazy strokes. Yeah, I mean, not they're, even, they're not even his fault sometimes, yeah, right? I mean, exactly. crazy holdouts. You know, you you mentioned the 34 PGA, which he he lost to his friend that he had his assistant, Little Poison, um, uh, Paul Runyon. I mean, what Paul Runyon did in that um, uh, PGA playoff on the 37th hole, um, Woods hit it to two on the par five. Was on the green putting for eagle on the 37th hole, and Runyon. He's hit a so-so drive, not long, he's always straight, but he ends up hooking his brassy into this par five, hits a movie-tone news truck that's out on the side. <laughs> it bounces back, it bounces back to the fairway. Runyon then sticks a wedge, makes birdie, and Wood misses his eagle putt. Yeah. Which takes them, so he should have won it right there, which takes them yeah. to the next hole and Wood misses his 12-footer, Runyon makes his 8-footer, boom, lost the 34 PGA. It's like he didn't just lose it. I mean, it bounced off a truck yeah. and saved 
running a birdie. I mean, it's like craziness. <laughs> I want to mention one other because you mentioned in this question about his length. Like in the 33 British Open, he was over in the British Open. He played it because they were over for the Ryder Cup. He was playing because he played in 30, 31 and 33. And um, while he was over there, he um, actually is well known for a shoddy hit in his fourth round that that it was so remarkable because the longest known shot ever hit at, at St. Andrews and certainly in a major at the time that the fifth hole is a par five and you're supposed to miss the seven pot bunkers on the right side called um, the seven sisters. And then from there, it's a par five. You hit over what are called the, these two bunkers that flank the, the fairway hundred yards short of the green if you can clear those bunkers what are called the spectacles you got a good shot of making birdie on this hole well what does craig wood do he not only misses the um the seven sisters on the right he actually drives his ball into the spectacles 430 yards off the tee <laughs> and because he's in this because he's in this now this is the longest run there's been a plaque there it's probably still there but for 60 70 years there was a plaque there saying craig wood drove it here that's how amazing unfortunately he's in the bunker it forced him to make bogey if he hadn't made if he had been shorter on that drive and not made bogey he would have won the 33 bitters open outright but instead because he makes bogey He's in a playoff, which he loses in the playoff. And, the, and, and, and how he lost in the playoff is, is a crazy story in itself. I'll just really briefly say sure. that. Uh, number one is St. Andrews, where we all know you got to lay up a, from the burn. You don't hit driver these days. But and I don't know what club he hit. But he actually hit it in the burn right its feet in front of the green in one. So instead of saying, okay, I'll take a drop and try to get up and down for par, he kind of pulls the Vandeveld and gets, takes off socks and shoes, gets in the burn, in the water, tries to hack it out, makes double bogey six in this 36-hall playoff with, with Denny Shute. So now he's made double bogey on the first hole. He gets the second hole, he's rattled, makes double bogey, makes another bogey. He's five down through five down now through four and then finishes five down through 36. So, you know, it was actually his length that cost him the tournament. Cause if he hadn't hit a 430 yard all time record drive in the fourth round, he never would have been in the playoff. And then he hit it too far in the playoff and made double bogey six to start and lost that British one and only British open he played. And so really amazing things happened to this guy when he was, he, he was like, as Connor said, he's, He's he's a miracle away from not winning five or six majors. I yeah. mean, he, he yeah. just yeah. I guess the only guy you could really compare him to right now is Greg Norman. Norman, yeah. you know, lost each of the majors in a playoff. I believe he's the only man to have the lead in all four majors going into the fourth round, the final round in one season. Um, if you look back. You know, the guy was snake bitten too. Azinger in the PGA, Mize at the Masters. So I guess if you want to know what what it looked like for somebody to lose in a crazy way, you could look at Greg Norman. Um, yeah, snake bitten. Yes, yeah, absolutely. It's not that they lost it; somebody went out and won it on top of them. They did something that was completely unexpected, knocking it in from the bunker and chipping it in, like Mize did at uh, 
uh, the Masters, just crazy things. Hey, you mentioned this earlier, Connor. You know, back in Craig's day, being associated with a prominent golf club was a big deal. It was a big deal to say it's pr- for the club, it's playing pro was so-and-so. And it was a big deal for the pro to say they were associated with such-and-such a club. Craig wound up the pro at, like you said, winged foot in New York. Yeah. How big was that, and why was it so important? Oh, I mean, it was huge. I mean, first of all, you have to factor in the fact that, you know, when you were winning major tournaments back then, you were usually winning, I don't know, I, I'm not looking right now, I'm guessing right around 1000 bucks, 1500 bucks. It definitely wasn't. It was good money back then. I mean, 1500 bucks went a lot further than it does today. But it wasn't, you know, career-changing money. It wasn't millions of dollars. You weren't retiring by any stretch of the imagination. So you really relied on endorsements and, you know, having a good club pro job. Uh, Walter Hagen had to get away with it because of his pizzazz and his, you know, ability to do exhibitions. But if you think about it, like Craig Wood isn't that kind of man, right? He's, he's not a blowhard, not that Hagen was. He's not an exhibitionist, which Hagen certainly was. You know, he was just a down-to-earth pro that just knew how to play golf and wanted to make people better. If anything, I think if you look at, you know, the Mike Brady, Craig Wood, Claude Harmon, it's basically a perfect formula for a great golf club pro at a prominent club. Mm -hmm. You've got three men who were fantastic players, three men who could have won probably a lot more majors, and, but you have three men that were very level-headed and really loved the game of golf and loved the people who played golf. And I don't mean professionals or not just patrons, but, you know, members of the club. These people were revered at their club. Not worship, mind you, but they were just revered. And that would definitely held true for Craig Wood. He was someone who, I think if he's in a room and you're in that room, whether he won the 1941, you know, Masters and, or PGA, I don't think it really mattered. If he didn't win two majors... He wouldn't be in the Hall of Fame, mind you, but I think he'd still be that guy in the room that you want to hang out with. You mm-hmm. know, this blonde Cary Grant, who just is the everyman, you know, the everyman who just everyone wants to just sit down and just talk about his life story. Mm-hmm. He was that kind of guy. That's mm-hmm. a good pro. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, it just t- t- um, adding to that, um, as you said, I mean, he he was a college graduate, had a business degree. You know, the stories I've heard is that these very prominent and, you know, often wealthy members at um, at his club, um, you know, asked him for advice about business and investing and those kind of things. So he was their friend. He was a mentor to, to people. Um, and you know that, you know, obviously Claude Harmon was his successor at Wingfoot. But, of course, you know, he named his son. Craig Wood Harmon, you know, I mean, that's, you you know, what kind of guy uh, Craig Wood was when the guy who replaced him named his son after him, Craig Wood Harmon, you know, who then became a very successful teaching pro at uh, Oak Hill for 40 years. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And you know what, I might be speaking on a tone and I'm going off of memory of an article I read a long time ago. So forgive me if I'm wrong, but you know, it wasn't too many years after 41 where he retired from golf. I think he left Wingfoot in 46. And if I remember right, and I could be wrong on this, but I believe 
uh, one of the Fords convinced him to open up a dealership. Like well, a yeah, dealership. I was, yeah, you're exactly he did right. Quite well, and yeah, that, yeah, he did quite well. Again, part of it was managing, you know, that two-time major champion winner. But I think people just adored him, and they wanted to help him and wanted to see him, you know, be successful. And I think that was part of that. Yeah, you know, you're you're exactly right, Connor. You know, he won tournaments every year from 28 through 44, but he had that bad back. And, you know, he even loved to go hunting and fishing, and he couldn't even enjoy that anymore because his back was so bad. So not only did he have to give up playing competitively, but also, eventually, he had to give up his job at Winged Foot teaching because he just couldn't swing his back was that bad and one member was a member of the ford family and he helped craig set up a few car dealerships so you know life must not have been what he had imagined after his playing days were over he goes from life on the tour to being a teaching pro at winged foot and now He's selling cars. Um, how do you think that affected his legacy, that and the fact that he was an introvert? You know, he didn't play for a gazillion years, and he was somewhat of an introvert. How do you think his legacy has been affected by um, a career that was shortened and you know, the fact that he wasn't very boisterous. Yeah, I mean, I, I think it, I think we'd be hard to call his career shortened. I mean, in 1941, he went, uh, you know, two majors at the age of 39. I kind of liken this to, you know, Ben Hogan winning, um, you know, the Open Championship in 1953, and then, you know, he doesn't win after that. And a lot of people think, you know, something missed out, but you got to look at his age. I mean, back then... There were people retiring. I mean, you think about it, Arnold Palmer didn't win a major after the age of 35. That was more common than it was, you know, disproven. You know, back then, 35 was almost retiring age for, you know, planning on winning major championships. Mm. Uh, Walter Hagen was, you know, stopped winning in 1929. He wasn't that old. Uh, uh, Bob Jones, of course, uh, the out, you know, the outlier here, retired early in 1927. So, or I'm sorry, at the age of 27. So. You know, I, I don't think it's that. I think he's just a late bloomer. I think you're right. I think his personality really kind of set him aside so the average golfer doesn't know who Craig Wood is. But I'll say almost probably every historian I know knows the Craig Wood story quite well. Wouldn't you, mm -hmm. George? Yeah, absolutely, because you don't have to look very far to find out, you know, you know, who the great ones of each era were and of the thirties and the early forties. I mean, he's, he's, he's right up there, obviously, you know, it's orders overshadowed by Jones who's done in the thirties. And then you, then right after Craig Wood really came Sneed, Hogan and Nelson. So they took yeah, the that's a big shadow. Yeah. yeah. Sort of like I just did this podcast recently on the great tennis player, Pete Sampras. And, you know, when you think about Sampras, well, a lot of people don't think about Sampras. It took 30-something years for a tennis player to come along and top Roy Emerson's record of 12 Grand Slam titles. Sampras did it. He did it in a 13-year period. He won 
14 Grand Slam championships. 30-something years for someone to break that record. And then along comes Roger Federer, and in just over yeah. seven years, he 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 beat Sampras's record, and then along comes Nadal and Djokovic too. So yeah, you know Craig Wood maybe just wasn't at the top of the game, wasn't the name of the game for a long enough period for his name to stick and for the average golf fan to really know who Craig Wood was. Yeah, I mean, you, I mean, really put in perspective, you have, yeah, you have Sam Sneed, who was basically his own, like, marketing team, right? I mean, just people loved Sam Sneed. The stories he could tell, mm-hmm. just, he was beloved by the press. You had uh, Sir Byron, right, who just had this glorious swing. We only saw it for so many years because he retired so early, but it was just beautiful. Mm-hmm. And then you had Ben Hogan, who was just this workman, like he was going to dig it out of the dirt, bloody knuckle it, whatever had to be done. So you had these three huge personalities in golf winning tons of majors. And here you have Craig Wood kind of in the shadow of mm-hmm. this guy who is flamboyant, like Sam Snead. You have this beautiful swing of Byron Nelson. And then you have the workhorse of Ben Hogan. You kind of have these three great personalities so everyone can identify with one of those three, whether he was your favorite, he was your favorite, or he was your favorite. And then you just have this like really subtle, you know, happy to be there, level-headed Craig Wood, mm-hmm. who, you know, was an amazing player. You can't come in second and third that many times without, without being an amazing baller. Mm-hmm. And yet, in the shadow of those three, after, I think George said, be in the shadow of Jones Hagen. Right. Right. Hey, before we finish up today's show, a few final questions. I, I, I ask this periodically. There might not be an answer to it, but what the heck? If you were to compare the game of Craig Wood to someone on tour today, who would who would we watch to get an idea of the kind of game he had and why? Ooh, that's tough. George, you have any thoughts? I mean, of course, the first thing that pops in my head is uh, the one who just won the tournament today, right? Uh, Bryson, Bryson DeChambeau. DeChambeau. And I think, you know, DeChambeau doesn't get enough credit for what he's done to his putting. So, I mean, there's some comparison there. I mean, DeChambeau went through several series of messing with his putting. He took the Sam Snead route of doing side saddle there for a while. I think that was less than half of a season. Uh, but he's always been experimenting and getting better. But if you look at his statistics, you know, that's been one of the great improvements beyond just, you know, him bombing it out of the sky. That one just sits, I think, probably because he just won the around the Bay Hill. So mm-hmm. that's probably unfair. But he's a bomber who's now putting great. What do you, what do you think there, George? You know, just off the top of my head, without giving it too much thought, I would actually pick Rory McIlroy, and I think they're comparable. The reason I say is Rory bombs it. And Rory is likable as can be. And um, they, you know, Rory's, you know, if not for one or two strokes, they'd have the same record. So, I mean, Craig Wood, in in my mind, is big enough to be put in the the comparison of a Rory McIlroy. And right now he's way ahead of um, Bryson DeChambeau, in my mind. 
So it's just going to Bryson may do a lot more things. And I, I love watching this game. There's no doubt about it. It's not a put down anyway, but I pick Rory just if I was going to pick somebody right now. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm going to change my vote. I'm going to agree with you. I think you're right. I think if we didn't have the media presence that we have today, Rory's not terribly outspoken, but he says what's on his mind and he's very genuine about it. I think you're dead on there. I think, you know, and, and I think Craig Wood could have the similar statistics when you look at, you know, four strokes from being, you know, a six-time major winner. Uh, that's, a, that's a really good one, George. Yeah. I agree with you. Very interesting. Hey, um, when you look back at the career of Craig Wood, what is it that we need to remember? What is his legacy as a golfer? You know, I'll just give you, I'll give you a, a terrible legacy because I think as golf historians and all the fans want to think of majors, 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 I think amongst everything, I like the fact that he's just a level-headed guy. You know, I, I guess I, I suppose I, I identify with him because I also have a bad back, so I know what it can be like playing with a bad back. For, but for him to do it and doing it with, with just class and dignity, and, you know, becoming the pro at Wingfoot and leaving a legacy with Claude Harmon, all the great pros that have followed at Wingfoot, I mean, I just think he's a standard bearer for what everybody should do, at least aspire to do on the PGA Tour, which is, you know, just be a great person without having to, you know, be an amazing personality. And and what I mean by that, and I'm not saying people do it today, but, you know, just be who you are. And I think he did that as well as anybody. Very cool. Connor Lewis... George Petro, thank you so much for spending this time with me on Sports Forgotten Heroes. I have really enjoyed this conversation. You guys made this a lot of fun, beginning with the talk, the discussion about memorabilia, and then sharing so much knowledge about a golfer whom I think time has forgotten And um, I'm thrilled that both of you were able to share so much with us. Thank you so much for having us. Absolutely. I really enjoyed it. In 2008, Craig Wood was inducted into the World Golf Hall of Fame. For his career, he won 21 times on the tour. Twice, he finished second in the Masters, and he also finished second in the U.S. Open the Open Championship, and the PGA Championship. The highlight of his career, of course, was winning his first major, the 1941 Masters, and later that year, the U.S. Open. Craig, as mentioned a few times, was also the first and just one of two men to lose each of golf's four majors in a playoff. Overall, what a career. He just wasn't a flamboyant guy. Pretty much kept to himself and just went about his business. And while he might be a forgotten hero of the game, his accomplishments can never be overlooked. Thanks again to my guests today, Connor T. Lewis of the Talkin' Golf Podcast and golf memorabilia collector George Petro. And thanks to all of you for joining as well. Next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes, I'm going to examine the career 
of a baseball pitcher with a very special guest, a baseball pitcher who most have never heard of yet. His numbers are some of the most extraordinary in history. The fact that he is not in the Baseball Hall of Fame is one of the most puzzling mysteries in sport. We will be talking about Jim McCormick. That's next time for now. Thanks again. And we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes. A special thanks to Warren Rogan. I was feeling the stress of producing five podcasts in five weeks. Recording a live Zoom interview with Dr. Bob Jones IV about his grandfather and being a part of two interviews for two different publications. I took on too much, and yet I didn't want to disappoint you. Warren, save the day. And how great is Sports Forgotten Heroes? If Warren just stuck to golf, my podcast would go out of business. Golf's great history is full of could'ves, should'ves, and would'ves. But it's nice to tell a story of a nice guy who found success later in his career. Craig Wood, the pro golfer with movie star looks and Midwest modesty, fulfilled his destiny in 1941, and shortly after that he hung up the sticks forever. He could have been a leading man on the silver screen, but instead this two-time major champion became part of the rich lineage of wing-foot golf professionals. Until next time, yours in golf history, this is Connor T. Lewis. Thank you.